0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hello and welcome to a Channel 33 Podcast. My name is Sean Fennessy. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Ringer. I'm joined today by the writer-director Ben Wheatley, who's made seven feature films including The Horrifying Kill List, The Psychedelically Violent Field in England, and the dystopian satire High Rise. Is that accurate, Ben? Well, I think it's six, but seven if you count the theatrical release of Deep Breath, the Doctor Who episode. I do count that. Good. His new movie is a '70s shot. Shoot 'em up. It takes place almost entirely in a warehouse. It's called Free Fire. It stars Brie Larson, Army Hammer, and Killian Murphy. Ben, thanks for coming and chatting with me. Oh, thanks for having me. So, Ben, you um you make movies with uh, common themes, but they are often operating in different genres. So, you know, you've made, uh, let's say, a science fiction dystopia. You've made uh, a crime thriller. You've made movies that seem like one thing, but often go in the other direction. Are you always thinking about genre when you're writing your movies? Um, I think I'm thinking about
1: what kind of films I want to see. And I like genre films, so I kind of go go to that as my happy
0: place. Did you feel like uh, you just hadn't seen a great action movie in a long time? Is that why you went to this?
1: Uh, yeah, I wanted to make one. I like action movies a lot. And I felt that the the world of um, the contained, relatable action, you know, where where you you understand what physically you could do these things and if you're in this situation you might do it that way kind of action which I I don't think we've seen that much of it's kind of now action is more the spectacle side of it is so huge and the kind of um, scale of these things are so huge that you just feel you watch it and go uh, what I found specifically I was watching movies and I was going this is amazing if I'd have seen this when I was 10 this would have been the greatest film ever and yet now I care not so much and why (laughs) is that why is what's happened to me Well, maybe I'm just an old grumpy old bloke and I don't like it like movies anymore or is it the, the the films I saw as a kid that there was a connection um emotionally to those characters and 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 scale-wise which I kind of could relate to more and I don't relate so much anymore
0: so we should just say for the listeners the movie is about ostensibly an arms deal that is happening in Boston in the 70s yeah and though it specifically doesn't say it's in Boston so that okay. I won't get
1: hung up for and drawn and quarters when I go to Boston, and they go, these accents are ridiculously wrong.
0: <laughs> well, we don't know if there are any Bostonites. It's just, no, exactly. it just could be in Boston, yeah, yeah, or it
1: could be near Boston. Okay, it great. might it might be in the state of Massachusetts, but that's about <laughs> as close as I, as 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 I want to get.
0: My know. boss, Bill Simmons is from Boston, so I'll run it by him afterwards. Um <laughs> so, but I'm curious about what comes first, does? the sort of puzzle box setup of the arms deal come first or does I want to make a movie in a small space that has a lot of action and it come first?
1: I think what came first with that is um, wanting to deal with action in a procedural and close quarters way. So that was, I think, was the first thought. And that would have been in the mid 90s. -hmm. And I was like, oh, I'd read this crime report about a shootout in uh, Miami that the FBI were involved in. And there was a whole thing was you can find it online you know in a blo- like a forensic report and I'd read that and I was like that's really fascinating because it's nothing like any shootout I've ever seen on on in a film but it's also um, incredibly tense uh, and fascinating and like a short story in itself so I kind of th- I read that and I thought well that why you know what is the reality of uh, what is a reality of being in that situation mm-hmm. and why you know and the world and the tropes that have been built up over years of, of movie making have kind of led, led us far, far away from any kind of reality of what it might be like.
0: So you make movies that uh, are often very intense, often lead to a sort of chaos. This movie, I think, is your funniest movie. You know, you've, made, you've made a comedy in sightseers, but there, there are a lot of laughs in this movie. Was that a difficult thing to try to weld that action and that tension that you like to do with some of the comedy?
1: No, I think I think it's um, they go hand in hand. You know, the creation of tension and the creation of of laughter are, are, are different sides of the same coin. You know, so it's um, and a lot of it is about. We knew going into it that it would be about a series of crisscrossing stories, and the stories aren't necessarily like stories in the grand sense of you know of, of plot, but more of like a, of physical stories of things that were going on, um, and that they, which is a fancy pants way of saying gags right right. so so there would be gags set up physical gags and payoffs backwards and forwards throughout the whole thing which would be visual gags and then there would be another layer on top of that which would be the banter and and conversation between the characters which is a layer of 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 like characterization jokes
0: is that something you try to work in all your movies because you obviously it's been talked about a lot you have a background in viral videos 10 plus years ago You worked in advertising. You have this a, is a new thing that, that it's ten plus years ago. It used to be <laughs> used to be when I started. It was like a thing. It was
1: like a new thing, and now it's like a thing from the past. Well, I feel you, sad about that now. When the
0: filmography gets longer, you know, <laughs> the years go by. It's know, a thing that happens. I'm not getting any younger. Yeah, it's but but depressing. do you do? You, are you always thinking about those gags? You know, you've talked about like Max Senate movies and things like that. Yeah,
1: but I think that's what action cinema is as well. You know, is they might not action cinema is a series of gags. They're just not off not always funny. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at the Terminator movies, they're definitely a series of gags. Yeah. But they but some of them are really gruesome and horrible, you know. And I think that's that, that that there's a storytelling um a way of storytelling that goes across all those types of cinema.
0: Is that something that you and Amy talk about a lot when you're working on your movies too? Or are you saying like we want to have homage to things that we've seen in the past?
1: Uh, it's not homage, it's more like that it works and it's fun and and you want to make sure that the audience is, you know, in certain whatever movie you're making, you've got different goals, you know, and, and this film was to, to for it to be good fun mm-hmm. and to be a laugh and, and to, to carry the audience along um, and to see if we could do it as well, you know. That was the challenge of it, coming off of a movie like High Rise, which is a bit more cerebral and kind of um, talky and, and abstract, you know, to kind of go, right, we'll go back the other way now and we'll do something that's more... Um, Audience pleasing, and that you could ride that feeling of an audience of hearing them laugh and seeing if they, seeing how many of these gags will pay off and work for, for people in the room.
0: There are a lot of movie stars in this movie. You mm-hmm. know, there were some movie stars in your last movie, High Rise. Is that different at all from the first three or four films that you made, working with sort of um, above the line talent like that? It doesn't seem to have
1: made any difference on the floor mm-hmm. on the making of the things because it's, there's nowhere to hide in front of the camera if you're no good. <laughs> You yeah, know they're all, yeah. and they're you know, and whether you're famous, massively famous or not, massively famous as an actor, that's just you know, you've got to be able to bring it on the day. So outside of it, it's all been fine, and they certainly never had any kind of of you know horrific divaish performance uh, behavior from anybody. You know, everyone's been really super sweet. Not even Army Hammer. No, not even Army um, Hammer. Army Hammer is dis- is a despicable person <laughs> because he's nine foot tall, incredibly good looking. Yep. And really nice. It just makes me so sick and young. Yeah, you know, it's I,
0: just. Ugh. I saw. I as I said to you before, I saw the movie in Austin, and you mm-hmm. guys did a Q and A afterwards. And I think a lot of people weren't sure if he was just doing a put on. He seemed like unnervingly funny and earnest, and he's just strikingly handsome.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think I th- I I I'd certainly had the um, I had a mental picture of who he was that was not who he was mm-hmm. before I met him, and I thought, oh you no, know, he's going to be, you know. Humor, some kind of weird humorless um, supermodel type character yep. and he was just so funny. A thousand apologies. I hate it when people are tardy. This is Ord. It's good to meet you boys. Thanks for coming out. I'll be later. You didn't masturbate before you got here, did you? you what? I told you I don't want to work with anybody who's carrying a load of weapons. <laughs> it's nice that I was wrong.
0: I read that um, Killian Murphy saw you out to work with you yeah. on this um is that something that's happening more frequently for you now do you find um, that people are just ringing you well
1: bits and bits and bobs of it yeah and it's always great when actors reach out like that and certainly from killian the killian murphy point of view he you know he's a guy who's looking at what's going on you know and who's Who's coming up? And he's interested in cinema in itself, and not—it's not just sitting in a in a castle somewhere waiting for offers to come through. It's like looking out, going, "What's going on? Who's around?" You know. Yeah, that's like, interesting. Yeah, and I think, and I think the best actors kind of do that, and they're always, and and certainly, I was kind of heard a story about was it Ridley Scott the other day, and they there's Obviously not an actor story, but the same thing for directors. Where he'd been, he'd been talking to someone to do some art direction for him on a movie, and when he went for the interview, the, the Ridley Scott knew every film he'd done, right down to the, the lowest budget movies. Mm-hmm. And he realised in that moment that, that Scott was probably watching everything. Wow! And you know, at the top of the game, but they're not. They're you know, these guys are. Totally studying what's going on around from the, the smallest movies up, and I think that's really interesting. And the same thing has happened with actors. I think the smart ones are kind of looking around, and going, "Well, that that's an interesting movie. Maybe I could work with them, and I'll, you know, my my films could become more interesting." In the world.
0: So, speaking of film legends, this movie is executive produced by Morton Scorsese. I've heard that he saw Kill List and was impressed. Yeah, and how does that actually come to be? Where he, he's a part of this movie?
1: Well, I'd. Uh, I'd heard he'd like Kill List and I kind of got, I talked to my agent and said, can I get to meet him? Is that is that possible? You know, is, is does a world, a reality exist where that can happen? And they went, oh, yeah, well, you know, we'll talk to him and see. So I went and saw him and just chatted to him. And it was, you know, for me, it, for, for, first and foremost, I started as a fan, a massive film fan, and I got into cinema through watching uh, Taxi Driver mm-hmm. and, you know, and then spending an, an enormous amount of money buying books about Scorsese and, and large coffee table books with photographs and all this kind of nonsense. And so to finally get to meet him is, was just mind blowing for me, you know? So, you know, but, but what he brings to the film is obviously an unpeachable kind of understanding of, Unimpeachable understanding of all of of this kind of cinema, and a a person who's quite hard to argue with. If he disagrees with you,
0: basically. Did he have some serious notes for you?
1: No, it was fine. You know, he's kind of um, he was very generous about the whole thing, and kind of um, I think we showed him a a cut of it before any of the music was put on, so that was it was in its rawest state. You know, Mm -hmm. and and that was really interesting. And he was just saying about bits where he was he couldn't quite grasp what was going on, and maybe to look into. And uh, the clarity of dialogue and cleaning stuff up like that, but yeah. Interesting. But he just, you know, had two hours with him, just laughing about the and quoting the film back at me and Andy Stark, the producer, and that was, yeah, that was pretty much the pinnacle
0: of my career. <laughs> do you try to do you try to film nerd out with him? Do you try to say, well, like After Hours, that's the one that people don't understand, man. Well,
1: I think the thing is with him, it, which is kind of hard, is that if you, you know, my all my knowledge of film is from reading books and from. My anecdotal knowledge of films mm-hmm. from reading books and the internet, and when you talk to someone who actually lived it, it, it becomes very hollow. You know, as you yeah. as it comes out of your mouth, you go, uh, "I shouldn't even be saying this because it's <laughs> you know I don't know what the hell I'm talking about." Yeah.
0: You know, so you know when you're making a movie like this, obviously it's very precise. And I read that you actually designed it inside of Minecraft before you started storyboarding it.
1: Yeah, well, actually, the storyboard is first, and then I built a version of it inside of uh, in 3D in Minecraft to have a look just to walk around in it.
0: Had you done that before? Worked inside of a video game environment to make it to set up your movie?
1: No, but it but this was such a specific film that it had you know, I'd, ne- I'd never done any kind of um, animatics stuff before that mm-hmm. either. But storyboards are really tricky because they they lie, you know, because you can draw them any way you like, and you can bend the laws of physics to make framing work, mm-hmm. and also you know, the way that a lens. Acts is very different to how storyboard artists draw drawings. You know, they don't, you know, so they, they're very convenient the way that things fit right, together. Right. Um, and, and certainly in a movie when it's in real time and in a real space, there's no, it's very hard to, to cheat time and distance. So you really need to to see it, to walk through it. So that was a kind of a useful tool. And f- for someone, you know, it takes a s- too much time and skill and effort for me to learn like a proper 3D program, but Minecraft is about you know, I, g- I guess 20 years ago I might have built it out of Lego or something like that. But it's <laughs> like,
0: yeah. yeah. But you've talked before about not going to proper film school, and mm. that sort of resourcefulness that you have seems to have really helped you actually executing more ambitious ideas. Well, I think the thing is about film is the technology
1: changes all the time. You know, it, it doesn't matter what training you got; it's mm-hmm. all gone by the you know within two years. It's all completely different, and that and mine the using of the only thing that's novel about what I did with Minecraft was that, that it was from a game. You know, they, they've been prevising stuff for twenty years. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's just expensive,
0: right? What was the the hardest thing once you were on set making this to do every day? Um, I mean, it was tricky because there
1: was. Um, we were running the action sequences quite long, so they would run for like four or five minutes sometimes. So there's a, a lot going on, and it was kind of shot like um, a, a kind of halfway house between um, documentary and live television. So there were sets of cameras all over the place um, because we only had a six week shoot. So we, you know, if we shot it in a normal, in a traditional Hollywood way, we'd still be shooting it now. You know, cause there's so many shots. So we were shooting between two and seven cameras at mm-hmm. any one time. And the hardest thing was just keeping track of all those cameras and making sure that they weren't just being tucked away somewhere that you know everyone thought they'd done their job, but when you see the f- rushes back, it's all just a waste of time and you've only concentrated on the on your main two cameras and the other four cameras are just just recorded a corner of someone's ear or something like that so it was trying to think and holding that all in your head at the same time you know it was hard
0: I imagine it was incredibly loud. there are thousands of rounds of gunfire in the movie was it was it actually? Do you have to have earmuffs on the whole yeah, time? Yeah, yeah. Ear defender, defenders for
1: everybody on on a health and safety level. I mean, it is yeah. it's, it's far too loud, um, and it makes you sick. I mean, it's like the the, the um, percussive wave that comes off those blanks. If you're in the path of it, can um, really mess you up. You know. And I had it one, one time. I didn't have near ear defender on, and I had it like just onto the side like that because I'd been talking to someone and put it back. And it was down range of army hammer firing one of those AR-70s. Yeah, and I was sick for like, felt like I was going to throw up for about half an hour after it. Wow. It was
0: incredible. So you actually have the ability to make a viewers queasy. That's like one of my favorite things about your movies. Um, I, I'm, I'm Ever since I saw Kill List, I've been curious about that, that ability to sort of wend in the dread with telling the story. And if that's something that you even feel conscious of when you're making a movie. I think it's
1: taste and it's how prepared you are to go there, you know, and it's, and I think the thing is in the films that I've made that they, they have these kind of schlocky um, effects elements in them, which most people wouldn't go to, you Mm -hmm. know, or, or, but also they've got these genre elements in them that, you know, because I enjoy those types of movies, I'll go there, but it's also art house at the same time. So I think it's a kind of, the dread element to a degree comes from not knowing what's going to happen or where You're being wrong-footed all the time. You're not sure, Mm -hmm. um, and it's about kind of trust—whether you trust the filmmaker not to show you something
0: really appalling. Do you think now, given your reputation, that that's something that you have to build into every movie? Is there an expectation you feel to create that sense?
1: No, I think it's you. Just have it's a thing that you control. You know, you kind of go. There's a version of um, Free Fire which is incredibly gory and violent and bloody. You know, you could make that film. And you would might lose the audience, you know, like 10 minutes into the gunfight. It just might be just too horrible. Mm-hmm. And I, so I understand that. And I know what the edges of that are for making films like Kill List, you know. And I've seen it in the sat in with the audience and, and physically feel how upset they are and how hard it is for them to process story after they've been thoroughly upset, yeah. you know. So there's a sliding scale there. And then you just kind of you're, mo- you're operating within those parameters of like how much can you how much can they take? How much of it's entertaining, and how much of it's just punishing?
0: I I always wonder. I was re-watching Sightseers and Kill Us this week, and I always wonder if there's there was a time when you were making those movies where you felt like something that was too far, or did you write something that was too far and you didn't do it?
1: No, I think that you know you operate within the parameters of the films for starters. Sightseers was a comedy, so it wasn't ever going to be really really vicious, mm-hmm. and you don't you don't see them being sadistic, you know, mm-hmm. in a way that you kind of do in in Kill List. So I never, I never felt that there was something I desperately wanted to put in, but producers stopped me. That certainly never happened on all the films that I've done. And, um, or that I, I, I probably would more self-censor in that respect. So, so it's like, you know, like saying with Free Fire, there's not loads of massive gouting, exploding wounds in it and stuff right, like no, that. Flying we, limbs. Yeah. yeah. Which could, you, you could have done though. To be fair on the research I did, it's not realistic at all. You know, the whole world of, like peck and parry, blood squirty stuff is just not what happens. You know.
0: Does that matter to you? Does it have to be grounded in reality?
1: It does up until the point when I break those rules, <laughs> you know, so.
0: <laughs> Do you worry about, you know, your each of your films have gotten a little bit bigger. They've gotten a little bit uh, wider release. They've been more visible. You are an increasingly name brand for lack of a better term. Do you worry that as you go to the next thing that there will be producers that will say, no, you can't? Well, I I kind of, it depends what the project is.
1: You know, and I've done stuff like I did Doctor Who, and the, certainly in Doctor Who, and the TV work I've done, I don't, you know, I don't sit there and go, I'm going to do what I want. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I know what my role is. Right, you're an employee the, in that scenario, right? Yeah, or, or or more that no, understanding what the structure of production is. You know, mm-hmm. you go, you know, in 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 my films, I'm kind of at the top of the pyramid of of control. But in TV, I'm in the middle of the pyramid because it's a writer and producer medium. So you just don't, why would you fight that? Because you're only going to become sad. And in the same way with um, with adverts, you know. It's like, I, don't, I can never understand these guys who kind of um, become ad directors and then shriek about art when they're shilling butter or something like that. You know, it's kind of, you you know what your role is and you've got to do, you've, there's plenty to do and it's kind—and of, it, and it's super difficult, but mm-hmm. it's, not, it's certainly not, you know. It's not necessarily massively art.
0: Do you feel like all of that stuff is behind you or could you see yourself doing an advertisement or doing an episode of television? I'm
1: still doing ads and um, I'll probably do some more TV as well at some point.
0: I talk to a lot of filmmakers here Mm -hmm. and inevitably they always, at some point we get to a conversation about making a TV show because so many filmmakers are moving towards TV shows. Is that something, do you feel a pressure to create something that is a little bit wider than a sitting theater experience at any point in your career?
1: um i think there's opportunities to do it and i and i do enjoy television when i watch it mm-hmm. you know but but there's something about the there's something about tv and film as medium it's like the the film is like an album the tv is like a radio station and i think that's the problem is that that why does a tv series end usually because it has to because it's run out of viewers when right. it gets wrapped up <laughs> and it never ends at the peak of when it's great because mm-hmm. they can't leave it alone so they have to keep going with it but a movie is like a, a, a finite thing unless it's the other way around which is the new the new cinema now which is the the way that marvel works which is like a like a mega tv series mm-hmm. that you're buying a pass for every like four months yeah, to go like and con- see continuum, this continuum yeah yeah you're seeing like four episodes of tv basically you you know as a movie like a big chunk of it and then it all glues together as a as a super season doesn't it so i think it you know, there's there's two different ways of looking at it. Also, the other thing is that they're not, they're, as a medium, television isn't to be underestimated. And it's not just because you film stuff with people talking in rooms doesn't necessarily mean it's the same. You know what I mean? It's like to, the the, the, trend, the transition between the two of them doesn't immediately mean that there's expertise between the two of them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like in the same way that, that people make the mistake of thinking comics are films and they're not.
0: Yeah. So uh, that's interesting. The reason I erroneously said seven films in the intro is because I was thinking of Freak Shift, which is a movie that you're making in the future. And, you know, that's something that feels like it has some of the elements of comics and science fiction and maybe some things that you enjoyed growing up, Mm. just based on what I've read. I'm wondering, though, if there's uh, an interest for you in things like those IP-based movies, you know, those that superhero universe that is there a way for you to do your thing inside of a, an experience like that
1: i don't know i mean i'm I'm developing a thing i'm doing um i'm writing a script for hard-boiled the the not the john moo thing with oh, the, the frank miller book. yeah the frank yeah. miller Jeff darrow um, thing so that's kind of a step towards it but I, you know i don't know i mean i think that the the world of the Marvel side of stuff or the DC universe is much, it is it's back to TV where it's producer led and it's controlled in that respect. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know enough about it. And I'm not, you know, I know as much as you from reading the internet. So it's like, I have no insight or, um, uh, kind of industry inside knowledge mm-hmm. of any of that stuff, you know?
0: Yeah. so, is that something that you do? Do you feel like you are as up on movies as you were twenty years ago? Do you feel like an, a participant in that culture? I know it's hard for a lot of filmmakers because they're making movies all the time.
1: Um, I I think that I had a period of watching films intensely, which I, I I'm through. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not as obsessive as it was when I was in my kind of mid twenties to to mid thirties. Do you miss it? Um, well, you know. It, it's having the spare time to do it. You know, you have to commit a lot. It's a big
0: commitment. Do you miss spare time?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then uh, you know, it's uh, so. What Amy says to me all the time, "Is like you know, you've only got yourself to blame. You know, it's like we brought this on ourselves. We wanted to make films, and now we're making them. So we can't. And I, and it's something you know, I get asked why. You know, why do do so much work? And it's just like why? Why wouldn't you? You know, you don't. I don't want to let go of it. Mm-hmm. But um, I've seemed to have an enormous blu-ray and dvd collection which is mostly unwatched which i think is possibly saving up for a time when i'm not allowed to make films anymore and i'll have spare time to consume it all
0: could you see yourself being like scorsese being 80 years old and making the wolf of wall street or trying to make the wolf of wall street oh
1: geez i'd like to be 80 years old to start with (laughs) (laughs) i mean i think that that it you know to make that film at that point was a a minor miracle, you know, and and that that for me that was kind of his style, you know, developing and developing and developing to a point where no no one's touching, and you get kind of people making Scorsese esque films, but they're Scorsese from twenty thirty years ago, mm-hmm. not the, you know, not this thing. But I think he's very rare because he's kind of a so you know they talk about mash up culture now, or they did ten years ago. See, so behind I am, <laughs> but it, but the idea of like him coming from you know, classic Hollywood, um, French New Wave and uh, documentary, you know, all these things. And oh, he's his great love for Italian cinema as well. But it's like it's all those things kind of smashing together. And certainly with him and Schoonmaker as well, with the editing, where you're watching his movies and they're half, you know, they're, they're half classic Hollywood and then they're half like some crazy, who you know, documentary made by teenagers. Mm-hmm. So, you know.
0: I just saw before we sat down that Michael Bauhaus just passed away. The, oh, right. The DP, oh, yeah, who had made so many films with his. It's uh, a very incredible visual style. Do you, when you, before you go make a movie like Free Fire, do you f- go rewatch Mean Streets or For the Friends of Eddie Coyle or something like that?
1: No, I, I, I don't. I mean, I, I kind of, we had this conversation, Laurie Rose and I, the DOP, and um, it was, you know, should the Free Fire be shot on film? Should it be you know, should we go and get a load of antique lenses and but in a way that would just be you know we've come up through doing digital shooting on digital, and we've the language of the films that we've made has been developed through working in that way, mm-hmm. and if I'd have shot free fire on film, I'd have been fired on the first day, you know the amount of footage I shot, well, yeah. And all of these movies, I mean, the Sightseers was 120 hours of rushes. There's just no way you'd be able to. It's more than than Warren Beatty shot on Reds, you know. There's just there's no way you'd be able to do it. And also, the way the camera moves is not a 70s style. You mm-hmm. know, it's like it's a lot of Technocrane techno and and Steadicam and lots and lots of handheld stuff. So it, it's kind of, I think you have to be true to the to the language that you've developed, you know. And it's not it's. You know, I tried to make sure that it's not a pastiche of those movies. Mm-hmm.
0: That's it's an interesting way to describe it. I never thought of. it. I mean, it's '70s set, but it doesn't doesn't rip off the look of a '70s movie or well, anything. Well, it can't like because,
1: and also, the, it's like being a band in a band who wants to play like wants to be the Rolling Stones from the '60s, isn't it? Right. But the '60s don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. It's gone. That and that and that commercial imperative is gone. It, that kind of thing can't exist now. So it's a different. It's different. So you know, that's and I, and I, that's where I find myself on the whole. You know, the film shooting on film versus digital kind of front as well. Whereas, you know, I think that technically as an acquisition format, film is superior to digital on the highlights, if I'm going to be dull about it. But, you know, without digital, it, you you hold back a whole generation of filmmakers who basically, you know, to say that film film is the only way to make movies is wrong, I
0: think. Is there a, a technical achievement or a trick that you've been wanting to do but you haven't yet been able to do because of budget or circumstances or story uh flipping a car flipping a car <laughs> that's a good little uh end cap on i think a uh, cunning stunt right the first yeah. the thing that got you a lot of notice well, well i think I
1: think it's like a bucket list of shots and you go through them and you, I, I think in in um in Field in England, there was a shot where someone fired a musket and then there was a puff of dust. Mm-hmm. And that, for me, was like a big tick. I'd never done anything where, you know, something, some, you know, like... And I thought, <laughs> that's good. But flipping a car is important, you know, because that's... I used to love seeing films where cars get flipped over.
0: We'll keep an eye out for that in Freak Shift.
1: Oh, yeah, there's definitely going to be some car flipping in Freak <laughs> Shift. You
0: know? So, Ben, I, I like to always end this chat with uh, asking you what's an interesting thing you've seen recently that really knocked your socks off?
1: Well, in the, in the spirit of full disclosure, this is being re-recorded because I completely <laughs> got it wrong. But um, <laughs>
0: This is your fault, though. This is not this the I, filmmaker's fault.
1: No, no, this is not the filmmaker's fault. No, um, it's um, Kenji Fukasaku's uh, Battles Without Honor and Humanity, which I have some kind of a, a, a wound in my head which doesn't allow me to ever remember his name or the, or the thing properly. But yeah, I got it as a box set from Arrow, uh, which is like four or five movies. And which which kind of shows this yakuza, various yakuza clans in Nagasaki and Tokyo and stuff over over like a ten year period and the ins and outs of all their battles and stuff and it's brilliant and uh, yeah it was just it, it was a weird one because it, it it felt like it felt incredibly fresh it felt very modern but it um, but it had all the kind of stuff that you'd that I'd seen in Mean Streets like freeze frames and, and and names under the with the titles Johnny Boy and all this kind of stuff but but then. It was kind of a few years before or kind of almost simultaneous. So it's not it's not something that's been lifted from American culture. It's very specifically Japanese. And I like the fact that it was kind of a local, a big local hit that they that became this big old saga. The other thing about them is, which I really like is that the violence in it is so chaotic. And there, there'll be these kind of these big gang fights where they're all... Even the coolest characters are all kind of cowering and running about and shrieking and stuff. And, and it'll be really over in, in, in a moment. They'll go away and hide and stuff. No, it's, it's, it's well worth checking out.
0: Hard to imagine what you identify in those movies. I can't it's, think it, what it was. Yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> But that's why, you know, it was a real treat. It was like a whole box set, which I just sat and watched over like three or four days.
0: Well, we'll never forget Kenji Fukusaku again. No, but I will though. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry, Japan. And thank you very much for being here today and chatting with me. Cheers, thank you.